Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right. This episode of Enough About Me is brought to you by our great friends at Milton's. Milton's is the store for men. We're happy they are part of the Kirk and Callahan show, a huge part of the Kirk and Callahan show. And we're happy they're part of Enough About Me, uh, the presenting sponsor, if you will, of Enough About Me. Uh, and they've been there since the beginning. We appreciate that. It is the place to go. If you need to look great, if you're a guy looking uh, to look like a million bucks for a reasonable price with good people, the stores are great. South Shore Plaza in Braintree and Chestnut Hill Square, Chestnut Hill. You want suits? You get suits. You want casual clothing? You get it. You still want to go to the wedding, dress up to the nines? They'll do that all for you. Walk in there. Walk in. Put your hands up and say, I surrender. Milton's make me look good and walk out and it'll be done. Milton's is the store for men. It is the sponsor of the Kirk and Callahan Show and of Enough About Me. We love Milton's. If you're a Kirk and Callahan supporter, go to Milton's today, and you get to look great at a great price. No lose. Milton's, the store for men. Uh, This episode, and we haven't been on in a while, and I apologize for that, uh, is with Mike Stanton, uh, who was a writer of the Providence Journal for a while, and now has this great new book out on Rocky Marciano. And you do not think that Kirk Minahan was going to come back and do a podcast and a book about Rocky Marciano. Correct. Uh, we get these books, as I'm going to tell Mike here in a few minutes, sent to the office all the time. Most of them I ignore. This one just had a great cover. I looked at it and then started flipping through it and read a couple of pages and was hooked. I didn't know much about Rocky Marciano at all, other than what you and I know, the obvious stuff, Undefeated, Plane Crash, Brockton. This book is engrossing. Gets into his life, gets into the mafia, gets into his title defenses, the long run to the title, his military issues, his post-boxing career, which is also a disaster, his finances, the corruption within boxing in the 40s and 50s, all these other great fighters, small fights in Holyoke, huge fights at Yankee Stadium, Madison Square Garden. Can't recommend this book enough. Unbeaten. It's by Mike Stanton, who was the guest on Enough About Me. All right, I was raving about this book a couple of days ago on the air, tweeted out, Unbeaten, Rocky Marciano's Fight for Perfection. Uh, the author is Mike Stanton. Mike, what's going on? Good morning, Kirk. How are you? Good, good, good. So uh, so Rocky Marciano for me is one of these guys. So, well, first of all, I'll give you a little backstory. So every every week we have a couple of books show up, uh, sent to us, and uh, the publishers, I guess, send them to us. Usually I kind of ignore them. I'm reading something else. I, the cover looked good. I grabbed it, and I was interested because I don't I, – I was amazed at how little I knew about Marciano. I knew he was undefeated. Uh, I knew he was from Brockton. I knew he died in a plane crash, but – like very little else. He's sort of one of these guys who have slipped through the cracks historically. I wonder if you agree with that, and that's part of what uh, intrigued you about writing the book. Yes, I totally agree with that, and that's one reason I was enthusiastic to write the book, because he's not only a New England sports icon, but we, who people are familiar with in general terms, but nobody really knows the, the full details of his remarkable story, and it's fun to go back and, and fill those details in. When uh, what what so what leads you to to say I'm going to pick this guy and write this book yep. and, and and find this I mean your 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 history is you know the books you've written are are different what what led you to Marciano was it the was it the 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 mafia connection was it the Providence connection that was certainly a big part of it Kirk um, I was a long time of 
investigative reporter at the Providence Journal, where we won a Pulitzer Prize. And before that, though, I was a sports writer. And I actually did cover a little bit of boxing. Um, but what drew me to this was partly uh, being in Providence, where Rocky fought a lot coming up. And it was mm-hmm. a very rich mob town um, back in the 40s and the 50s when he fought here. Raymond Patriarca was the boss of the New England Mafia. And secondly, um, my father grew up in another small Massachusetts mill town, uh, went to, to college in Providence on the GI Bill, and um, after he passed away about a dozen years ago, I was going through his things, and I found an autographed poster of Rocky. And and thirdly, it's just, you know, I like history, and I think all history is biography, and, you know, to me, it's really not a book about boxing, it's about America and how it was changing um, in the middle of the 20th century, and it was a very colorful era with, you know, kind of a Damon Runyon cast of characters, guys and dolls, and um, and, and I like the idea of Rocky's struggle, which is kind of a universal struggle, you know, the son of an immigrant uh, from the shoe factories of Brockton. Um, it's Boxing is pretty much his only way out, and he overcomes a lot of obstacles from his own physical shortcomings to the pervasive corruption uh, in the sport. And that's why the subtitle is His Fight for Perfection in a Crooked World, because, of course, he manages to navigate that tricky terrain to become history's only unbeaten heavyweight champion at 49 and 0. Well, it's a crooked world, not just the mo- I mean, within his own management. I mean, he, yeah. you know, he starts with, with, with Wheel, right? Yeah, Where- Wheel is, uh, yeah. is the mob's matchmaker. He's the most prominent um, manager. And it's like the movie Rocky, Sylvester Sloan's film that was inspired by Marciano. And he says, you got to have a manager. And to get to the top, you need more than talent and skill. You need the opportunity, and that requires the connections. And so at an early age, um, you know, he's advised to go to New York because that's the center of the universe and for boxing as well. And so he goes down and he hooks up with Al Weil, and he knows that he has to ride Weil, even as Weil is personally abusive and domineering and corrupt and in the pocket of Frankie Carbo. Well, he almost sounds like, Mike, at times he almost sounds like, you know, just a lunatic, whether he's, you know, interrupting, you know, weddings and screaming and taking credit for everything. I mean, he just seems like a total asshole. While, yeah, he was. I mean, right? Everybody hated him. Um, one one writer said that he was a mixture of, like, Stalin and Simon Legree, and, um, and that was a favorable profile. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was, he was the guy that you needed, though, because he had a real uh, skill of matchmaking. And he was the matchmaker for the International Boxing Club, with, which monopolized the sport. And he answered to Frankie Carbo, who was a notorious uh, national mob figure who was known as the Underworld Commissioner of Boxing and had also been implicated in five murders and was part of the Mafia's famous Murder, Inc. with Bugsy Siegel. What's funny about Marciano, though, one of the interesting things about him is, you know, he would be, I, I was one point in the book where he tells somebody that he's ashamed to be an Italian because this guy was basically trying to strong arm him. But at the same time, like, he kind of liked flirting a little bit with the mafia world. Like, there was definitely some intrigue there. I mean, maybe more so post-boxing career, but he was not, there was something about it that was intriguing to him. Yeah, and it's a real paradox of his life, Kirk, his life, Kirk which is what kind of what drew me to his story as well, is that he kind of has to put up with the mafia. You know, his working-class father, Perino, always advises, you know, his children to be, you know, make your race proud. Um, you have to remember when Rocky is born and grows up in Brockton in the 1920s, there's a lot of anti-Italian prejudice. You know, Congress shuts the door to immigrants from Southern Europe. Um, Sacco and Benzetti are arrested on the streetcar in Brockton, not far from Rocky's house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he, he faces a lot of that prejudice. And so there's a lot of 
you know, ethnic pride. And by the 1950s, he's kind of the all-American boy, uh, the great white hope um, as the champion. And so when a couple of mob guys come to him in his dressing room before he defends his title in San Francisco against Don Cakel and, and offer him, you know, big money to throw the fight, he throws them out and he almost punches them. He's so angry. And then he goes down to Beverly Hills and he meets with his friend Mario Lanza, the opera star. And he's, he's there in his home when uh, three mob guys come in and, and basically make a pitch to Lanza to take over his career like they had Frank Sinatra. And Lanza gets mad and punches one of the mobsters. Uh, this is something I found in, an, in a law enforcement report. I was going to ask and you that. Yeah, how you found this. He punches him out, right? Yeah, well, yeah, he punches him out. And Marciano's saying, like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, Mark Rocky's like, you know, these are dangerous guys. You've got to be careful. The, the head mob guy who just came to visit you is Tommy Three Fingers Lucchese. And, uh, and, and then Rocky sympathizes with Mario. He says, look, I have to put up with the mob in boxing. They control my career. I pay them half my earnings throughout a while. Um, but you just got to go along to get along here. Um, but then he retires, and, you know, all that action that he had in the ring, he needs another outlet for it. So he starts to consort with these mob guys, and they love him. They adore him. You know, they'll fly him anywhere. They'll buy him suits. They buy him free food provide him with women, and uh, so he kind of likes the action. At one point he goes, I found he went to Havana uh, right before Castro took over and was talking about, you know, getting involved with a mob casino down there, and then the revolution happened, and then at another point I found some FBI files that showed he was meeting with Johnny Rosselli uh, to talk about a, a stake in a Las Vegas casino. Did you have any idea before you wrote this book, because I had none, 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 mm-hmm. Did you have any idea that Marciano was in was in military prison for what, a no. year in Indiana? Is that right? I, I, is that That's correct? Yeah. I mean, that, that was that was one of the, the the revelations. Have you ever seen that reported anywhere? No, I don't think. So, it's how do you there. find that? I mean, the research. First of all, I'll just say this: the book is so good that I like read the seventy pages of like research at the end of it. That's that's yeah. that, that's how good it was. But but I mean, how do you how do you stumble upon that? I shouldn't say stumble. How, how do you find that? Well, I did stumble upon. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, well, a couple of ways. Um, for one thing, this is a golden age of sports writing. And um, not only were there terrific uh, sports writers in newspapers and magazines, but the archives of news magazines like Sports Illustrated contains these detailed reports. And in them, you know, a reporter goes to Brockton and talks to all, all the people that know him and, and just sends, you know, we hear that he had some problems when he was in the Army. And the public story was that he served in an Army engineer unit. They were over in England. They deployed to Normandy during D-Day. And, uh, you know, that was the story. And then mm-hmm. Rocky comes home, and he serves in Fort Lewis, Washington, and that's where he starts to box. But what I discovered is that as his unit was about to be deployed, and what happened was I called the National Archives in St. Louis, and I was working with the archivist there to get his military record. And she says, well, we have a digitized copy we can send you uh, because he's a prominent person. And then she kind of, you know, I ask her to search further, and she comes back and says, well, I also have a paper transcript of his court-martial. And that was stunning news to me. And they sent me over 200 pages of witness interviews, police Jesus. reports, and, and his mug shots, which appear in the book for the right. first time. But <laughs> it's fun. I would think it would be hard to tackle a book where the subject is dead, everybody who's ever fought is dead. You know, yeah. almost every I man, I know it's his, his, his children, uh, some brothers and sisters, but you're going in you know, kind of uh, attacking it, knowing that you're not going to be able to talk to certain people. Got to be, got to be, a t- I mean, I, I don't, where do, like, where do you start with a Rocky Marciano book? What's the first couple of steps? 
Well, I think it's to, to read what's been written about him. Yep. Um, find his own words, which are out there voluminously in, uh, you know, newspaper stories, first-person articles, uh, television and radio interviews. Uh, talk to the people that knew him. Um, I have friends at Sports Illustrated and ESPN that opened their archives, and um, ESPN had done a documentary where they interviewed a lot of his... Oh, the Sports uh, Century, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and they were able to give me the unedited transcripts of people who had passed away. And like you said, I wasn't able to speak to myself. So there was a voluminous record out there. And in the case of the Army court-martial, I had Rocky's own words because he testified at his military trial. And what was interesting about that case is you follow the thread, and there was this two-year gap in his public story in which, you know, right, right. D-Day, and 1946, he suddenly is on furlough in Brockton, and that's when he has this famous amateur fight where he kicks the guy in the balls and right. uh, is disqualified. But what I did, And then he goes out to Fort Lewis in Washington, and then the question is, well, why is he serving in the Army a year after the war ends? And the reason was so that he could come out with an honorable discharge. In the meantime, he was in a military prison in Indiana, and I found the records for that. Um, and what's interesting about that is because he goes out to Fort Lewis, his boxing before that had been very sporadic and very amateurish, but now he boxes on a really strong Army team out there. They go to the National Junior AAU Championships in Portland, Oregon, and he fights for the title, and he loses to a guy named Joe DeAngelis from Massachusetts. Um, but it's a close fight, and Rocky is so clumsy at the time that he punches um, him on the top of the head and, and shatters a knuckle. And fortuitously for him, there's a Japanese-American Army doctor, a surgeon, who does an experimental operation and basically saves his career before it had even began. And I tracked down that doctor who had... I was going to say, you, you get into this doctor as well. You get a little yeah, biography Dr. of him. Thomas, Thomas Takeda. And Rocky had given an interview um, after he was champion saying, I wish I could remember that, doc- that Japanese doctor's name because right. he saved my career. And I not only found him, but I, well, he had passed away, but I found his um, sons uh, who had become doctors. And they told me this amazing story about how Takeda's family had been interned in the in Japanese-American camps Jesus. during World War II. But he survived because he was in medical school in Cleveland. But he had to tell, but but it wasn't that he had to tell the, the people he's operating on that he was Japanese? Yes. That, that's not, it's, it's, it's insane. They had something called a non-Caucasian clause. He had right. to sign agreeing that if as part of his clinical studies, you know, white patients refused to be treated by him, you know, he would just have to leave medical school and not become a doctor. But fortunately, nobody objected. And fortunately for Rocky, he was on duty out at Fort Lewis when Rocky came in with this shattered knuckle, and he saved his career. So it's a remarkable confluence of events and characters. And, you know, for instance, there was a a fighter he fought in Providence, uh, Harry Haft, who was a survivor of Jewish concentration camps uh, in Germany. So, yeah, it's a really rich uh, cast of characters in this book and a lot of new stories that I found about, you know, Rocky's relationships with people like Frank Sinatra and Jackie Gleason and, you know, even Burt Reynolds. Oh, celebrities left and right, right? Debbie Reynolds and uh, and, and right. Eddie Fisher and, right, yeah, Burt Reynolds at the end where Burt Reynolds said he, he looked like <laughs> he was getting ready to punch him in the face and Marciano was, was like, you, you don't even try it. Don't even. Because he's not, because he's not, and I think it's uh, Eisenhower, right? He's not like when you look at him. Whether the, the cover, which is a great, who's he hit? Who's he punching in the cover? That's Roland Lestarza. So they fought twice. Twice, yeah, yeah. Fight in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, that's a great. Oh, man. what an awesome picture! That's a, like that's like such a, one of those pictures from that era. You know, it just screams yeah. that time. But when you look at him, I mean, I'm guessing if he walked in here today in his physical prime, you'd say, "Wow, 
he's a big guy, but you wouldn't be you wouldn't be overwhelmed by him, right? I mean, he's not no, like not at all. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of a heavyweight fighter who fits that 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 profile of somebody who is massive, but it's 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 not Marciano. No, and that was you know that was the other great story about Rocky is you know his trainer Charlie Goldman um, said you know I got this I got a guy who's short, stoop shouldered, and balding with two left feet. You know, <laughs> they all look better than he does as far as the moves, but they don't look so good on the canvas. And that was Rocky. He was 5'10", 185 pounds, short arms, clumsy, awkward as hell. But he packed a punch that was one of the most powerful in heavyweight history, nicknamed the Susie Q. And he could take punishment. He could take a beating. And, you know, people look at his 49-0 record, and it's kind of like the Patriots. They won five Super Bowls, but none of those were cakewalks. They all went down to the wire. They were very dramatic. They could right. easily gone the other way. I mean... Against uh, you know Ezra Charles the second time he had his nose split wide open and it was bleeding like a faucet and the fight was about to be stopped and he was about to lose his crown and he rallied and, and knocked him out. Well, it felt like about half a dozen times the fight was about to be stopped. Whether it was a cut yeah. on his eye, I think he had issues with the one right, the one on the nostril. Yeah. But what's yep. funny is if you had said to me about Marciano, and again it's 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 I'm I'm amazed. You know I know a lot about Ali, I know about a lot about Frazier, I know a lot about Lewis. Uh, but if you said to me how many title defenses does Rocky Marciano have, I would have said like 12, 14. I didn't realize it took forever, and forever means back then five or six years, but forever, first of all, to get into sort of get away from the Brockton Providence world, and secondly, to become the heavyweight champion. I mean, it was, and, I, and I, obviously the, the mafia and all this stuff was a big reason why, but it took him a long time, and almost by the time he got there, he was already beginning his sort of downward spiral as a fighter. I, it almost feels like yeah. the best was before that. Well, he started late. Uh, he started boxing late uh, at the age of 24 and uh, turned professional after he got out of the Army a few years after. And he lied about his and, age, uh, right? He said he was a year... He, he took a year off his right. age. Um, and, yeah, he, he won the title in 1952 against Jersey Joe Walcott, and he defended it six times before he, he walked away. He could have still fought further, but he didn't want to. But, you know, that title fight, which I really get into in my book about with Jersey Joe Walcott was epic because there was a lot of evidence I found that the mob tried to fix the fight on Walcott's behalf. It was in Philadelphia. You know, the guy behind Walcott was Blinky Palermo, the Philadelphia numbers king, right. who later backed Sonny Liston when he came up. And, um, there was a mysterious substance from Walcott's gloves that got into Rocky's eyes oh, with right. the fight. And Rocky, in the first round, he's fighting a dangerous champion, Jersey Joe Walcott, very underrated guy. And he gets knocked down for the first time in his career in the first round. In the middle rounds, this substance works into Rocky's eyes, and it's burning him, and he's actually fighting blind. And Al Wilde is going crazy in the corner, yelling at the referee to check Walcott's gloves. Uh, Rocky's police bodyguard, a Philadelphia detective, is warning you know Rocky's trainer that the mob is trying to fix this fight, and basically Rocky comes off the off the mat in the thirteenth round and knocks him out to uh, to win the title. Is there ever concern when you write a book like this? And you and I actually listened to you do another interview with a guy I listened to a couple of days ago, and he asked the same question: yeah. Is there is there concern when the guy is everyone knows he's forty nine and zero? And you yeah. spend so much of it, and you do a great job with it, so much of it describing these fights that you're thinking, Jesus, I mean, we know how this ends. Is there, when you go in and you're thinking, how do I make this traumatic? Well, again, I go back to the Patriots' five Super Bowls. I mean, they won them all, and then they, they're, they're a dynasty, but they're, you know, they're very dramatic. And, right. and, and it's almost like um, when you see 
that he wins, but then you see how he wins, and you, you put yourself in the moment. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book, Kirk, was kind of recreate what it was like to be in Madison Square Garden, the big smoky arena, or be in Holyoke, Massachusetts, the working-class city on St. Patrick's Day, and kind of smell the smoke and the popcorn and the sweat, and just put you in the middle of what that world was like, because well, it really is kind of a lost world in America today. He was... Before he was champion, he was still one of the highest-ranked heavyweights in the world, probably already one of the most famous men in America, and he was still schlupping at the living at the YMCA. Correct? I mean, he was he he lived yeah. he lived this this you know I mean well, I mean you know, I I realized yeah. when he was champion it all changed, but for a long time he was living uh, an insanely nomadic exi- I mean, really uh, Spartan existence. Well, that's that's the Cinderella story that I think is kind of universal and transcends boxing. Is that he, yeah, he's literally he has no money. He and his friend Ali Colombo, his boyhood friend from the Sandlots in Brockton, they're actually hitching rides on overnight produce. <laughs> right, right. In New York, they get out at the the terminal in the pre-dawn hours. They wander the streets of Manhattan um, for entertainment because they have no money. They walk up and down Broadway, and you know, one one night they see Willie Pep, the uh, you know champion from. Uh, Hartford, and he's walking up Broadway with a beautiful woman on his arm, and they just follow him for blocks to imagine what it would be like to be a champion and have the world at your feet. And uh, yeah, they're staying in a dollar a night room at the Y, and uh, you know, living pretty hand to mouth. But Rocky, you know, would sacrifice like that. I mean, he would walk 35 miles from Brockton to Providence just to you know visit someone, <laughs> and you know, he was a relentless trainer, and that was you know. Part of his genius. It's a shorter part of the book, but I actually really enjoyed, say, the last 70 or 80 pages, too. Once he retires, once he's done, yeah. wins his last fight, beats... Who's his last fight? Not Charles. Archie it's, Moore. Archie Moore, right. right. Old Archie Moore. Beats him, right, beats him. He's done. Uh, it seems to me that if he didn't have uh, uh, Wilde doing that, he probably he might have stuck around a little more. Yeah. Um, maybe was would, would you think, Do you think it's impossible... That if if he had different people, different management, that he might have come back uh, two or three years later. I know that they, they've been talked about. Yeah, and first of all, he wouldn't have walked away when he did. Right. Because forty nine and zero, everyone says, why not get to fifty? That's a nice round number. But he discovered that Weil was uh, stealing, dwindling from him, stealing money, and he was burned out. And he was tired of you know he was very cheap and very uh, you know careful with his money. And he decided he wasn't going to give any more of his blood, sweat, and toil. To Al Weil, and so he walked away. You know what's funny is, right. be, sorry, but be, it's funny you said he's very careful with his money, which leads me to what I was going to say. The post boxing career, the seventy pages after, is is really good, but yeah. he's he's careful with his money. He's but at the same time, he's just bizarre with it. Like the way he handles it in his in his post boxing career, whether it's buried in somebody's uh, uh, his Our buddy, shelter. what's that? Bomb shelter. His bomb shelter, or it's all cash, and it's in you know, it's it's. He seemed pa- almost paranoid. It, it seems like you had said, and you see it all the time, it seems like he was chasing something after his post-boxing career that he couldn't get because that, that high from boxing, whether it was now the women, the money, the drinking, the nightclubs, the w- whatever, the, he just couldn't replicate it. All the things he had deprived himself of during his you know years as champion, <clears throat> he now cashed in. And to me, you know, when I was writing this part of the book, I really was reminded of a totally different character, fictional character, Don Draper from Mad Men. Mad Men, definitely, yeah. How you're in the 1960s, the world is changing all around you, that kind of stolid, you know, 1950s America is is moving away, and you're trying to search your, 
for your place in this changing country. And he's wandering around the country, trading on his celebrity. People are giving him money, and he's very, you know, suspicious with cash. He'll he only takes cash. He'll he'll throw away a, a hundred thousand dollar check, but um, he walks around with a paper bag. You know, many stories I found where he's got a paper bag with ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand in cash. And he's taking flights to Hawaii with his kids on these cheap flights, yeah. and I mean, and he just... takes cheap flights and he, you know, cashes in the commercial plane tickets that people give him to go on appearances, and including when he died, right? And it ultimately cost him his life. And his family had warned him many times: "Don't risk your life in these private planes." And he's in Chicago in 1969, the eve of his, uh, you know, 46th birthday. And a mob friend in Chicago says, can you go to my nephew's steakhouse in Des Moines instead of flying home to Florida? So he puts it off. He gets in a private plane, uh, and they fly into a thunderstorm with an inexperienced pilot, and he crashes in a cornfield in Iowa. And uh, it was a shocking and tragic death. There was a sports writer who said, start the count, he'll get up. A lot of us today are wishing there were an honest referee in a cornfield in Iowa. Jace, yeah. So uh, the book again is is I cannot recommend the book enough. Unbeaten. You you cry. I, I like I said, I got it and I kind of looked at it and then read it and I couldn't put it down. I texted you or whatever. I read it in a couple of days over vacation. Yeah. It's great. Hopefully, the feedback I'm guessing so far has been really good. It's been very positive. And on, on your behalf, Kirk, I thought it was because I have a father Minahan who's one of his early mentors in Brockton. Oh, it's, oh, that's, that's right. You mentioned that. Ironically, I I, I do not know Father Minahan. No, I, I don't know that. Um, He's a CYO baseball coach. Rocky's first love, and he had to drag Rocky out of the gambler's woods where this uh, one-legged mobster from Providence like Pete ran a dice game. It's also funny to me that the two boxers in history who I most associate with walking away uh, at their peak are both from Brockton. Marvin Hagler and Rocky Marciano. They both they both walked away and never came back. And you know, Rocky, if he had not died in that plane crash, might have wound up managing uh, Hagler? Uh, Hagler, because he was going to go into partnership with the Petronellis who oh that's right they're in the book yeah that's right yeah jeez any book signings or anything coming up here you want to promote for us um yeah I'm going to be let me see I I am going to be at the uh, Barnes and Noble in uh, uh, Framingham okay I'm not sure what the date is here alright we'll tweet Uh, it out yeah it'll be Saturday um, July 21st okay excellent 1 o'clock excellent again can't recommend the book enough thanks so much Mike We'll, uh, we'll talk to you down the road Well, thanks, Kirk. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.